Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Morning, Francine. Good morning, Dave. Bleary-eyed Dave. Why am I bleary-eyed? Why do- well, because you had a great weekend at the White House Correspondent Dinner. That's right. I didn't want to mention it, but you did. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was really fun. Were they London, talking they inflation? They were talking inflation, banking, uh, takeovers, you name it. I we love were, it. Dave we Merritt goes to Washington to chart the global I was, economy. I was in the city on the road. I was, you know, in Washington, D.C. But I'm back in London now. And, you know, it feels like there's a lot to talk about, right? Uh, we've had the second biggest collapse of a U.S. bank over the weekend or the second biggest failure of a U.S. bank. First Republic will now be taken over by J.P. Morgan. That's the bid that the FDIC has accepted. They... The transaction was announced in the early morning hours after First Republic was seized by U.S. regulators. First Republic. The was... transaction makes J.P. Morgan, which is already the nation's largest bank, even more massive. An outcome government officials have taken pain. Last week, Deutsche Bank bought Numis, one of the best-known boutique shops in the city of London. There's just the news of consolidation in the banking industry continues to roll on. Yeah, I find it quite difficult to look at where the global economy is headed because inflation in the US and the UK is remaining stubbornly high. And at the same time, we're talking about this credit crunch starting to take hold. So you wonder what central banks are looking at. I need that word or that phrase, credit crunch. I mean, remember back in 2007, that was the thing everyone was saying uh, was happening in the economy and ended up bringing the banking industry to its knees, right? And we're starting to hear it again. We're seeing signs of lending being pulled back across Europe in the United States. And is this the beginning of another big cycle of economic turmoil? Or is it just going to be a blip and we're going to return to normal soon? I'm David Merritt. And I'm Francine Lacroix, and this is In the City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the conversations at the heart of the City of London. This week, Alex Brazier, who is the deputy head of BlackRock's Investment Institute. He was also a former member of the Financial Policy Committee at the Bank of England, where he spent 20 years over that financial crisis, the first time round that we had that credit crunch. So he's had a ringside seat in economic turmoil. And they came out with this big report last month at BlackRock talking about a new era that we're in, in terms of the investment environment. We've gone from this long period of what they called the great moderation, low inflation, high growth, to now a period where inflation is going to stay much higher for much longer. Alex, what's the craziest thing? Like you, So you live and breathe, right? And you've lived and breathed like UK economy for what, the best part of 15 years? 20 odd years. 20 or you're too Man young and for boy. 20 years. What's the craziest thing you've ever seen in those 20 years? Probably the run on Northern Rock. Panic across the country, a run on Britain's fifth largest bank. The Bank of England offers... Northern Tonight Rock. at 10, Northern Rock appeals for calm and urges its customers not Northern to panic. Rock. Customers queue outside some of the bank's branches, but the Chancellor says it's a sound business. Uh, which wasn't crazy in the sense that it was irrational, as Mervyn King famously observed at the time. But it was 
the time when I think everything was most upended. And it was a, it was a good old fashioned bank run that wasn't it? People queued up. People queued. Some they of them didn't even, just some of them even took app, a check. Right. So yeah. I think if you're going to queue, yeah, bank yeah. run the last the take the cash. Right. Right. Um, take a suitcase. No, that was that was kind of the last Mary Poppins bank run. Yeah. Perhaps. And yeah. you look at what's happening recently. Very very different. Much faster. Much less visible. And we've we've just had the second biggest bank failure in history over the weekend. And you know we're, back, we're we're taping this on the day markets are back after the long weekend in London, but it's not making much of a ripple. That is it. I mean, th- this is what strikes me as extraordinary. You know, Northern Rock was this huge turning point in the economy. Are we now getting used to these banks failing, and and is that some sort of new normal that we're living in? I, I think there's a little bit of that. So the reason I say Northern Rock was the most sort of surprising event is because it came after a period when no banks had failed for a very very long time. And obviously, there were bank failures in the US as well that were very surprising to people. I still think 08 is fresh enough in people's memories, people of a certain age, uh, at least, that bank, bank failures are less surprising. But I think the other thing that's striking in this case is, take First Republic, you know, it was basically marked down by the market by 97%. Right, it wasn't a, few a, weeks it wasn't ago. a surprise. No, a few weeks ago. So the actual yeah. resolution of the issues isn't, isn't the news event. Uh, the news event was some weeks ago, and possibly even before that, because the the losses on SVB, First Republic's balance sheet, it's not like 08, where you know the losses had been sliced and diced and moved through the system, and nobody knew quite where they were, so it was a question of loss of confidence in the whole system. This is losses on fairly transparent securities and loans due to rising interest rates, uh, and they can be readily identified, and the market readily identified them weeks ago. But do, do you think the banking crisis is over? And it's still unclear to me because you had SVB and you had Credit Suisse about how much of that was, you know, investors looking for the weakest link because of higher interest rates or whether it probably would have happened anyway. I think higher interest rates were the proximate cause. It's certainly in SVB and First Republic's case. The interesting thing here is, though, that the the banks are realizing that they can't take depositors for granted. And there's an acute version of that and a chronic version. So the acute version of it is banks that have taken too much interest rate risk and are now technically insolvent on a mark-to-market basis, SVB, First Republic, they can't take for granted that their depositors will sit tight and they can earn their way through those losses. Actually, depositors have looked at that and thought that the losses mean there's less equity than needed to pay out the, uh, the deposits. Uh, so they run and they run quickly. So they can't take depositors for granted like that. And Credit Suisse learnt the same. The mark-to-market value of its balance sheet wasn't sufficient to repay all the depositors, and a run started. There's a chronic issue, though, as well, that we're probably moving to now, which is that banks, again, can't take deposits for granted. They haven't raised deposit rates particularly quickly, as is normal in hiking cycles. But money market funds which have been substantially reformed since 08 and are invested in short-term government securities and sometimes in deposits at the Fed, now this is new too, um, are offering something close to the policy rate. So we've seen these huge flows out of the banking system and into money market funds. That's great for depositors to have the choice, but it's a big competitive challenge for banks that they're going to need to adjust to now. And deposit rates are going to need to be much more sensitive to policy rates. All of this is sounding like it's just going to keep reinforcing these inflation numbers, right? And I, I was reading the BlackRock report 
that you put out last month that structurally, you know, rates are higher and they're going to be higher for longer. All of this is feeding into the fact that rates are all just keeping on going north, aren't they? Well, they, I think, I don't know whether they'll keep going north. They will go a bit further up across developed markets. But I think the really interesting thing is that central banks are going to keep them there, even as their economies slow and probably enter recession later this year. And that's a really different playbook to the past. So playbook everyone's used to is PMIs head south, people forecast a recession, oh, don't worry, central bank's going to cut interest rates really sharply. This is on its head. This is central bank observes inflation very high, economies overheating, needs to generate a recession, raises rates to do so. So when the recession does unfold and the damage of those rate hikes becomes clear, they, they don't turn around and say, oh, we need to rescue the economy from this. They're actually in the business of creating these, these recessions to meet their inflation targets. What's new for them is, is all these supply side problems. But do you think there's an underlying belief from the Fed and the Bank of England that they'd rather crush the economy than not keep inflation under control? I think they are very concerned that if you don't keep inflation under control, the cost to the economy of getting it under control then is much, much higher than it would be otherwise. So they're in a very difficult situation because of supply side problems. They face this difficult trade-off. They need some economic damage in order to bring inflation down. That's a big change from the past. Uh, the question, though, is what's the right point on that trade-off? Do you bring inflation back slowly, but that risks inflation expectations getting de-anchored and it becoming embedded, and that's really costly to deal with? Or do you bring it down very quickly, but you need quite a deep recession uh, to do that? And it, there is a middle way, but without a sort of public debate about the different choices here and what they're aiming to do, they've lurched from, don't worry, it's transitory, to raise rates in the fastest rate hiking cycle since the 1980s. Um, that seems to go from one side of the ship to the other, that there was probably uh, a middle way. I mean, you said it, they've got a very difficult job, right? But that, that turnaround you just described from inflation is transitory to the fastest rate hiking in, in a generation, uh, it's, it's a bit of a disaster, isn't it, in terms of policymaking? Or do you, do you think it's just the hand that they've been dealt? I think they've been dealt a really difficult hand. You know, I spent 20 years in a central bank and it was easier than this. I, I have a lot Quite of sympathy glad you're not there now, for that. I'm very easy. glad. <laughs> yeah. even, even in 08? Yeah, and I, I think the big difference is that even in 08, the monetary policy challenge was old playbook, which was there's a credit crunch, demand's heading south, loosen policy as much as possible to try and offset it and rescue. Now, it's a really difficult economic situation, but you don't face difficult trade-offs. You can go all in, as Mario Draghi said, whatever it takes. It's very simple, but not pleasant. Now it's complicated and unpleasant. They have a difficult trade-off. Uh, they face a slowing economy, but they can't come to the rescue because they need it to slow because supply-side problems mean their economy is fundamentally overheating. But why keep the 2% inflation target? If it were to move to 3 3.5%, does it make that much of a difference? Tempting, but that's probably the road to ruin in the sense that you change the inflation target to 3. Where do you end up? Well, you don't buy yourself any improvement, you just end up with 3% inflation because everybody starts to expect 3% inflation factors it into their price setting, their wage setting. So I still think 2% is the right number. 
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. How, how was that 2% number come to you? You know, there's been some chatter, hasn't there, about how it was plucked out of thin air. <laughs> what, <laughs> or, found in a kinder you know, egg? Sketched on the back of a napkin. Yeah. I don't know. Was it, I mean, was there some science behind that number? Yeah, I think so. And it goes way back in the midst of time. Um, it's one of these things, isn't it, where something that's widely accepted, all of a sudden people turn around and say, how do we get here exactly? But I think there are a number of good reasons for it. One was... A lot of empirical research showing that price stability was actually, in the long run, a really great thing for economic growth. And ultimately, this isn't really about inflation. This is about people's well-being and economic growth and incomes. It's really important not to lose sight of that as a central bank. The uh, second thing, though, was that, well, what is price stability? Is it 0% inflation? And I think people calculated that things like quality improvements in goods and services meant that two was on a sort of adjusted basis equivalent to price stability. And then the third thing that people factored in was that it's good to have a little bit of inflation because it helps to grease the wheels and helps prices and wages to adjust a bit. So there was a science behind 2%. And it, I mean, it held, for, it held for a long time, right? And it seemed to work. But I just wonder, the economies are changing so much. Is it time to look at it again? Well, the Fed did look at it again uh, and came up with flexible average inflation targeting. Remember that? Hardly. You know, Actually, it didn't really go anywhere. That was all about <laughs> trying to deal with very low inflation by promising higher inflation in, in the future. People will judge how that went. But the challenge now, I think, is this is where inflation targets are really valuable. Because if you don't stick to it as a central bank, you end up just in a worse situation with higher inflation and you haven't really bought anything in terms of, of economic growth. So this is where central bank independence is actually really very useful. And particularly for markets, you know, having a clear steer, a clearly credible anchor for where the authorities are trying to bring inflation to is a hugely helpful stabilising mechanism uh, amidst other volatility. You could argue that central banks are independent, but maybe less than they used to be because of the, the huge debt burden. And we heard two speeches from Janet Yellen and Christine Lagarde talking about fragmentation and how that actually changes the nature of central bank monetary policy going forward. 
as geopolitics lead to a fragmentation of the global economy into competing blocks, this calls for greater policy cohesion. Not compromising independence, but recognizing the interdependence between policies and how each can best achieve their objective if aligned with a strategic goal. Yeah, I think this is, goes to the new regime where, you know, for 20 years, they had an era where supply capacity in economies was growing really nicely year after year because labor supply was growing, energy supply was growing, and supply chains were becoming increasingly more integrated and efficient. So it was an era of abundance. And so the job was just to keep propping up the economy, keep it in line with uh, growing supply capacity. Their job now is fundamentally different. They face many more of these supply problems, much more difficult for them in terms of a, creating a trade-off. And they have to start thinking much more actively about how to manage that trade-off that they haven't really faced very, very much in the past. So it does fundamentally change the nature of their job in a way that I think the move from transitory to fastest rate hikes since the 1980s was kind of realising the, the old playbook needed to be thrown out and then moved to a new playbook. So we're in a new era now. And this, again, this, this idea of a regime, a new regime, as you put it in your report, what should investors be doing then to adjust to this new era? It's going to mean you talk about more volatility, interest rates higher than they've been for a generation. What should investors be doing and what, how does it lead the city of London? I think uh, on, on the investment front, it sounds like a miserable story. New regime, more economic volatility, recession ahead. And from a macro perspective, it is undoubtedly less pleasant than it used to be. But actually, from an investment perspective, it's pretty interesting because volatility brings dispersion. More dispersion brings more relative value opportunities, as we've seen over the last 18 months, actually. And so in our view... You know, it isn't really a question about is 60-40 the right number still? Should it be 70-30 or 80-20 now? If 60-40 was right for you before in terms of your risk-return trade-off, it's probably okay now. But what's different now is that over that so-called great moderation period when everything's growing pretty nicely, whatever your allocations were, you could pretty much set them and forget them. You could be pretty simple, pretty static. You could buy the equity aggregate, buy the bond ag aggregate, and it did pretty much as well as anything else. I think what's different in this regime, and we're trying to model it very closely, is you can probably do a lot better amidst this volatility by replacing simple aggregates with more granular allocations so you can exploit relative value opportunities, e.g. between short-term bonds and long-term bonds, emerging market equity, developed market equity, linkers, nominals. That, that, those sorts of opportunities open up in spades here. So simple becomes granular and static becomes much more dynamic and nimble because when these relative value opportunities open up in times of volatility, you've got to be quick to seize on them and change portfolio allocations. So for us, it means a much more a bit, much bigger case for, and I use the term broadly, sort of active management of portfolios, whether that's through active funds or through active use of index funds. But, but the market is a little bit in a jumble. It's difficult you know, day in, day out to understand what they're focused on. Yes, but that's in a way the flip side of if you can get your head around what's going on here and this new playbook and this new regime, that volatility isn't so much a scary thing. 
it's actually an opportunity. There's opportunity here in the volatility. The relative value opportunities, it opens up the jumble, as you described it. It's technical, CFA you, level yeah, exactly. five. Yeah. Exactly. And <laughs> if, you can, if you can get your head around that jumble, there's real opportunity in terms of investment. Is there yeah. that kind of institutional knowledge in the city still, though? Because, you know, as you said, it's been, a, it's been a long time since we had this sort of volatility. I mean, we've talked on this podcast a bit about how no one's, no one has, a lot of the people on the trading floors hadn't sat through a crisis. You know, like we were all around in 2008, but a lot of people now out there weren't. Are, are a lot of people actually learning fast how to trade these markets? Francine's looking really offended. I'm really it was offended. So obvious that she was <laughs> I mean, obviously, I was around, but I didn't know it was that obvious. <laughs> <laughs> and there you were. Just a m- starting I, at um, well, it's certainly true. It places a premium on grey hair. Right. Um, but I think around the city, this is where the real opportunities are for people who have seen the past, can get their heads around it, can help younger staff get to grips with it. But yeah, it seems, you know, predicting inflation is almost like playing, you know, gambling, given where, how we undershot and then overshot. And now it's unclear whether it's a spiral, also wage spiral that's out of control. Like, wh- what do you see as the, the things that, you know, the, the older folks with the gray hair can tell the youngsters and how to deal and read inflation? Well, I think it goes to this issue about um, the central bank playbook, Right. So there's clearly now a a risk that inflation proves to be more persistent than markets are pricing. And this goes to the heart of it. The question on all our minds in all these areas when we're looking for relative value is, is something priced or are the risks priced? And if not, it's an investment opportunity. And you look at where inflation expectations are priced, break-even inflation expectations are priced. They're pretty confident inflation is coming down to two reasonably soon. the risk to that seemed to us tilted in one direction, even though that's very different to what people have been used to in the past 20 years. And so that's a relative value opportunity. And we tend to overweight linkers and underweight nominals, particularly in the US. So it's those kind of uh, questions about, is the balance of risks in the outlook priced that are, that are really what we're, what we're focused on, rather than, for example, a question like, When's the right moment to get to, to get in? So it, that's an old playbook of thinking you're always out and then you're just waiting for the moment to get in when the central bank rises to the rescue. New playbooks kind of, you're always in, you're always looking for a different relative value opportunity uh, across asset classes. That means being more nimble and more active. And that, I think, it, to go to the question, David, is, is like the future for investment in this new regime. Um, when it comes to investment, obviously BlackRock's one of the giants. Do you think that's going to play to you know, your scale is going to be a big advantage now. We're seeing we're seeing the big boys win, right? In some of these situations, the smaller sh- uh, smaller outfits, I mean, on the on the sell side with um, with JP Morgan being the one to ride to the rescue, HSBC here with SVB, we've had numerous snapped up by Deutsche Bank just in the last few days. Um, are we going to see more consolidation across the whole of the financial industry so that scale really matters to ride out this current wave of volatility. Very possibly. And I think certainly on the investment front, you know, what's necessary if the, if the way you maximise returns in this environment is by being pretty granular, pretty sophisticated, pretty active and nimble, then you need investment firms that are able to provide that granularity, the full spread, whether that's across types of funds, active and indexed, or across all sorts of asset classes, from alternatives to public markets, within credit and bonds, within uh, equities. And in a sense, that's the 
advantage of larger investment firms, uh, that they're able to provide that breadth of offering to help clients exploit those kind of relative value opportunities. So for us, you know, getting, getting our heads around this new regime is in the end all about figuring out what it means for investment. And in our view, it doesn't mean the death of 60-40 or the, its replacement with something else. It means the death of simple and static as a way of doing as well as you can. Even in a, you know, a credit crunch, that's a great phrase from 2008 as well, isn't it? Well, that's how it all, all began. And, and we're, we're starting to hear it again. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it could be catastrophic for the economy, right? If, if companies stop lending. Are we seeing, and we're seeing a few initial indicators of that. Is, is that something that you think is going to continue to snowball? I don't think it will necessarily snowball, but it is going to keep going. I mean, in the US, regional banks are really having, having to tighten their belts and they're going to face tighter regulation. That's going to raise their costs. You're going to see more consolidation in US banking as a result. I think also, though, that you're seeing it in the euro area in the bank lending survey, where credit conditions are tightening as the macro outlook uh, darkens a little. Yes, but I think we should think of this effectively as the result of what central banks have done. And they won't be looking at it and thinking, that's unintended. They'll be looking at that and thinking, okay, maybe that's going to, at the margin, do some of the work for us. So the, the, the folks over the road there in the Bank of England will be thinking, will be tracking this closely and we'll be thinking, okay, yes, the markets are doing a little bit of our work for us. Lending's going to slow down. Economic activity is going to moderate a little bit, and it's going to help drive inflation lower. And that balance is going to be kept. Is that? Yeah, I think that's right. So they don't need to do quite as much. Now, you talked about over the road. I think this is a bigger issue for the Fed uh, than it is for the Bank of England, actually, because the Fed's obviously the one with the explicit banking problems that are going to do some of the work for it. Uh, and that's probably tempered the extent of the, the rate rises. What's interesting, actually, is that nine months ago, it looked like the ECB and the Bank of England were having their work done for them by the energy shock. Now the energy shock's abated. They're having to do more of the work to slow their, slow their economies. The Fed looked like it was having to do all the work. But now the credit issues have come along and actually doing some of its work for it. And so when you look at what's happened to relative yields... Uh, expectations in Europe and the UK versus the US, actually you see that pattern emerge. Central banks are all trying to do the same thing, which is slow their economies. It's just the balance of work that each of them has to do has kind of shifted uh, over time. How many more banks are we going to see in trouble? I mean, you don't give me a number, but I mean, this is, is not the time? end, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> You've got to head for the door. I mean, you know, we, we're going to see this run more, right? The market is going to look for more signs of weakness, whether it's whether it's in Europe or, or in the US? Yeah, I think the market's now alert to who really does have a solvency problem. But it's now had an, it's had weeks to try and find them. Um, you can look at this equity prices, see who's trading at the, these levels. And actually, it, it does look like, as Jamie Dimon said, we're, we're at or close to the end of the acute phase of this. But remember, there's a chronic phase now, which is commercial real estate losses as the economy slows, some credit losses as the economy slows. That's going to hamper some banks, probably mean we see more consolidation. And this longer-term issue where banks now face more competition for deposits. Great for depositors, more challenging for banks. Do, do you not miss being at the bank? I mean, I know it'd be a nightmare, but intellectually challenging. I had 21 years of that <laughs> and went completely grey as a result. So, no, I don't. And, I, you know, I think, actually, having got my head around leaving and left, BlackRock's a really interesting firm for lots of the reasons you, you suggest. And in this difficult environment, helping clients 
deal with, as Francine christened it, the jumble and seizing some of the opportunities that that affords, that's really exciting. So no, I, I don't actually, uh, I don't walk past in them. I do walk past in the morning, but I don't walk past and think, <laughs> oh, I wish. Just speed up. Keep going. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Alex Brasher, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, if you like our show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe. This episode was hosted by me, David Merritt. And me, Francine Lacqua. It was produced by Summer Sardi and Moses Andam. Additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Alex Brazier. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.